Good afternoon, everyone. We'd like to get started. There are a couple of, I think, off-campus nonprofit folks that will be joining us, but I think we always forget to account for parking and walking into the center. So I'm really excited. My name is Naomi Nakano-Matsumoto. I'm the Assistant Director for Social Sector Ethics here at the Markless Center. And I'm um, excited to welcome you to today's program on the Johnson Amendment, the unique pol political role of nonprofits and religious organizations. Uh, we really appreciate your attendance. We only had a couple of weeks to advertise this and get this information out, but we really felt that the topic was very relevant today. And we have an in-house expert that we really wanted to take advantage of um, before he left to go back to Washington, D.C. So um, we're really pleased with the number of people who have uh, joined us today. Um, just so that we can get an idea of who's here, can you raise your hand if you're with a faith-based organization? And then those of you who are with a nonprofit. Same thing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Great. Thank you. So, so, there, there is a lot to cover. Uh, so I'm going to just briefly introduce uh, Father Tom Reese, and then I will turn it over to him, and then we will have a question and answer period right after. So Father Tom Reese is a distinguished visiting fellow here at the Marcos Center. He um, just recently became the. It became part of Religion News Reporter. Service. Service, I'm sorry. Yes, religious, religion News Reporter. And, but before that, he was a senior analyst at the National, National Catholic Reporter. In 2016, he was elected chair of the United States Commission on the International Religious Freedom. Father Reese entered the Jesuits um, and was ordained in 1974. He was educated at St. Louis University the Jesuit School of Theology at Berkeley and the University of California, Berkeley, where he received a PhD in political science. He has worked in Washington as a writer and lobbyist for tax reform. He was an associate editor of American Magazine, where he wrote on politics, economics, and the Catholic Church, and was editor-in-chief there, too. He has served twice as a senior fellow at the Woodstock Theological Center. So I'm very excited to introduce you to Father Tom Reese. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, you know, as you were reading my educational background, I thought, gee, I ought to add Santa Clara. I just, uh, because, uh, of course, I never got a degree. Well, I got an honorary degree, but I never got a real degree from Santa Clara. Although that's not even true anymore, because now that the Jesuit School of Theology up in Berkeley is part of Santa Clara, so I'm an alum. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was uh, very graciously introduced as an expert on the Johnson Amendment. I didn't really know much more much about it uh, before I was asked to give this presentation. I thought, okay, I could talk for 15 minutes and that would be it. And then I started doing a little research and found out, well, there's a little more to it than that. So uh, we'll, I think we'll find some interesting material here. First of all, uh, legal waiver. I'm not giving you any legal advice. If you have any legal issues, talk to a lawyer. Um, this is uh, just, uh, we journalists and priests learn to do this. <laughs> we cannot give legal advice. Uh, there's some good material. The IRS, of course, publishes a tax guide for churches and religious organizations, and I'm sure they also do one for uh, uh, nonprofits. The uh, U.S. bishops issue uh, periodically a political activity and lobbying guidelines for Catholic organizations. The most recent issue of that came out in July of 2016. It's really uh, very good for parishes and other uh, Catholic organizations uh, to make sure they don't get themselves tripped up uh, in the law. Okay, what is the Johnson Amendment? Well, the Johnson Amendment is an amendment to the Internal Revenue Code enacted by Congress uh, in 1954. Uh, it prohibits any, any, this isn't just about churches, any 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit from endorsing political candidates or participating in political campaigns. Um, that's very important. 
as we'll see as we go along. Because a lot of people, when they talk about the Johnson, Johnson uh, Amendment, uh, are speaking this real sweeping language. It's really very narrow. You cannot endorse political candidates or participate in political campaigns. Uh, the penalty, if you do, is you can lose your tax exemption, uh, which is like capital punishment <laughs> for nonprofits. Uh, it's as I said, it's aimed at all non uh, all tax exempts, not just churches. Now there are other parts of the tax code that limit the lobbying that can be done by tax-exempt organizations. That's not the Johnson Amendment. That's something totally different, uh, which I'm not going to talk about, but uh, uh, because I'm asked to talk about the Johnson Amendment. It does not have anything uh, to say about lobbying uh, by tax-exempt organizations. That's a separate issue in the tax code. Uh, why is it called the Johnson Amendment? Well, because it was introduced by Lyndon Johnson when he was a senator from Texas. Mm -hmm. There were two nonprofits that uh, uh, ran some uh, stuff against him when he was running for Senate. Uh, called him a closet communist. And uh, was, uh, they were funded by a Texas oil billionaire, H.L. Hunt, and also by uh, uh, Frank Gannett of the Gannett newspaper chain. Uh, obviously, they did not like uh, Senator uh, Lyndon Johnson, and so they used these tax-exempt organizations to campaign against him. Uh, what's prohibited uh, under this amendment and what is not? First, what's prohibited? Prohibits the use of tax-exempt funds or property or equipment purchased with tax-exempt funds in any political campaign. In other words, uh, you can't spend money buying campaign literature, printing campaign literature. You can't even use your Xerox machine to print campaign literature if you are a tax-exempt organization. Uh, you can't have campaign meetings on your property. Uh, and uh, you can't, uh, as an official of your organization, endorse uh, someone for political office. All of those kinds of things would get you in trouble uh, with the IRS. What can you do? Uh, you can, you know, if you're a pastor of a church, uh, step out of your pulpit, walk out of your church, stand on the sidewalk, and you can say whatever you want. You can endorse or condemn or do anything you want, as long as you're doing it as a private citizen on your, off your property. So you don't lose your political rights just because you're involved in a tax-exempt organization. Uh, as an individual private citizen, you can do anything you want. But if you're being paid by the organization, or you're on uh, the, you know, you're on the property of the organization, then uh, you can get into trouble. So you can also sponsor debates between candidates. So it's okay to. Uh, invite the Republican and Democratic candidates for a particular office to come to your, your place, and you can moderate a debate. No problem. That's all right. Uh, you can also put out nonpartisan voting guides. You can tell people, well, this is how they voted on these issues that are, you know, like, okay, this is how they voted on homeless issues. This is how they voted on peace issues. This is how they voted on abortion. This is how they voted on women's rights. As long as at the bottom you don't say, and that's why you should vote against them, or that's why you should vote for them, you're okay. But you got, you know, but if you add those things, then you're in trouble. So if you just talk, you know, if it's just a voter guide saying these are the issues you should consider as you walk into the voting booth, that's okay. But if you say, ergo, or therefore, vote this way, then you're in trouble. So you, you can also discuss the issues in a campaign. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a, a, a nonprofit concerned about homeless people, okay, you can talk about homeless people, you know, and, uh, uh, and what the various candidates say about homeless people. Fine, no problem. As long as you don't say you should vote for this person because they will take care of homeless people, then you're 
then you've crossed the line as a tax-exempt organization. Well, what's actually happening out there? Now, uh, I apologize to you folks who are with secular nonprofits. For obvious reasons, I'm very interested in what churches do. Uh, so what's actually happening out there? The Pew Center, uh, who does very good research, did a survey and found out that 64% of churchgoers heard the clergy speak about at least one of six issues that they asked about. Religious liberty, abortion, homosexuality, immigration, environment, and economic inequality. So 64% of people who go to churches heard from the pulpit somebody talking about those issues uh, during the campaign. Uh, at least one of those. Now, 46% of them said they, they heard their uh, uh, heard people their preachers talking about more than one of those issues. In, the, in other words, not just abortion or just not just immigration, but um, you know a number of these issues. So almost half of churchgoers heard you know somebody preaching from the pulpit about the issues uh, in a campaign. However, only 14% heard their clergy speak for or against a specific candidate. Uh, so that was pretty much, you know, pretty low. Now, the worst offenders are black Protestants. 28% of, uh, of churchgoers at black Protestant churches uh, heard their preachers say, vote for Hillary. And another 8% heard them say, vote for Sanders. Uh, so the, the most politically active group is not the white evangelicals, it's actually the black Protestants. Uh, why don't they get in trouble? Because nobody in their congregation complains. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And there's no IRS agents in their congregation. <laughs> or if there are, they're not going to report it to their boss. You know, this is, you know, there's been a long tradition of black Protestant churches being involved in politics in the United States. I mean, look at all the members of Congress. Practically every black politician started out as a minister. And he certainly started out involved with his church. You know, because that was the way people got educated. That was the way people organized. They were the, they were the, uh, uh, the civil and religious leaders in their communities. Uh, so there's a long tradition of that. Uh, in the Catholic churches, was much less. And this is what I found interesting. You actually had 5% of them saying they heard their, their uh, pastor speak uh, in endorsing Hillary Clinton. And less than 1% uh, heard them endorsing Trump. Now remember, this is, this is in tune with it. endorsing. It's not about what they spoke about in terms of issues. When it came to issues, Catholics were much, you know, heard a lot about abortion and immigration and environment and economic inequality, but very much less about religious liberty and homosexuality. I think the bishops would be kind of surprised by this since they spent all that money on uh, this uh, religious uh, liberty uh, issue. You know, we have this fortnight of freedom uh, in, in the, uh, <coughs> June or July. Anyway, they spend all sorts of money on this. Well, it doesn't seem to be having much effect in terms of getting down to the, to the people in the pews. So, uh, the bottom line is you, the churchgoers hear a lot about the issues, but they don't hear the clergy endorsing or attacking candidates very much. Uh, however, there is an organization which is trying to change that. There is, uh, in 2008, there, there was a group of uh, white evangelical Protestants who started the Pulpit Freedom Sunday. Uh, it was started by the Alliance for Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, and they specifically are in your face to the IRS. Most clergy, you know, they'll get up and say something, but they don't want to get in trouble with the IRS, so they're very careful. These people are in your face. They want the IRS to come down on them because they want to go to court and fight this, and because they think they can win in getting it declared unconstitutional. So far, the IRS has not taken the bait. 
Uh, so far, they have not taken the bait on and gone after any of these people. Uh, there seem to be only about a couple hundred uh, ministers that are involved in this particular thing. Uh, no Catholic bishops have signed on to this, and uh, the Catholic clergy have been told to stay away from it. Uh, what's the Catholic policy on, on all of this? The official policy is we talk about issues, and every four years the bishops publish a document called Faithful Citizenship in which they discuss the issues of the upcoming election. They always do it a year before the election in the hopes that it won't be interpreted as endorsing one or other of the candidates because it's before anybody's been nominated. Uh, so uh, they want to talk about the issues, but they don't want to talk about the, the candidates. What is the actual practice? Well, in 2004, 15 bishops said that they would deny communion to John Kerry because of his support for abortion. In 2008, 57 bishops said abortion is the most important issue in this election, which you know can be interpreted as another way of saying vote for the Republicans. In 2009, 82 bishops complained about the University of Notre Dame giving President Obama an honorary degree and having him speak at the commencement because of his support for abortion. Uh, and 54 bishops signed the Manhattan De Declaration, which is, uh, was a kind of a religious manifesto uh, drawn up by evangelical and Catholic conservatives who are very closely aligned <coughs> with the Republican Party. Uh, so, but remember, there's 300 bishops in the United States, too. When you add all these up, you know you can you know you can say all oh, close to half of them have have skated close to the to the line. What do Americans think about this? Two thirds of Americans oppose churches choosing sides in an election. They don't like this. They don't think they should. However, you know, there's 28 percent of Catholics think the church should endorse candidates. Uh, luckily, we haven't gone that route uh, so far. But the overwhelming majority of Americans think that churches should not be involved in endorsing candidates. However, you know they feel that they should uh, be expressing their views on political and social issues. That's okay. Um, how has the IRS been enforcing this law? Well. Rarely does the IRS get involved in enforcing this. They recognize this is this is bad PR. You don't want to take on Jesus. You don't want to, you don't want to take on religion in this country. You know this is problematic. You know uh, this. You know and and also they're not sure what the Supreme Court might do on some of these cases. Yes. Who knows what the Supreme Court's going to do? Might say, okay, uh, you know, if if corporations are people, well, churches are corporations, therefore they're people, therefore they have the right of freedom of speech, freedom of, you know, who knows what might come out of the Supreme Court. So they don't really want to litigate these cases. And finally, you know, what's the point of auditing a church? You're not going to get any money out of it. Go audit. Donald Trump. There you might get, you know, a few more million dollars in revenue, you know. So they're not really too excited about doing this. Now, one, uh, one guy who at, was the head of the IRS tax exempt uh, section said that in 1999, the IRS used to issue about 20 letters to churches a year questioning their activity. Well, remember, there are hundreds of thousands I mean, there's 300,000 uh, Protestant churches. Then you have the Catholic churches. Then you have the Jewish temples. And then you have, you know, the mosques. And then, you, you know, you've got, you probably have a half a million religious establishments in the United States. And they're only sending out 20 letters a year. You know, and they're just, you know, they're sending letter. You know, we heard that you did this and this. Now, could you let us know? You know, it's that kind of thing. Uh, often because of somebody writes in to complain.
complained. You know, that's the trouble with Catholics. We have Republicans and Democrats in our congregations. Uh, this is why the black Protestant churches don't have any problem. Nobody's going to complain. Um, so, or they read about it in the newspaper. Uh, you know, journalists don't realize that they provide intelligence for the IRS and the FBI and all sorts of other people when they write their stories. Um, so, any case. Uh, but most of these cases seem to be settled. You know, the church says, oh, no, 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 we didn't mean to do that. No, 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 no. We, we're sorry. You know, we'll never do it again. And everything's fine. There were two cases, however, that were very high profile uh, in this area. The first one was the church at Pierce Creek, which in 1992 took out an ad in a number of newspapers. Uh, they said, Christians beware, do not put the economy ahead of the Ten Commandments. Well, so far, that's not too bad. I mean, you know, that's probably not illegal. But then they went on to say, Governor Clinton supports abortion on demand, homosexuality, and the distribution of condoms to teenagers in public schools. And the ad cited various biblical passages and then said, Bill Clinton is promoting policies that are in rebellion to God's law. And then you got the clincher. How then can we vote for Bill Clinton? Now, that was bad enough. But at the bottom of the ad, they added a little note. Please send us your donations to support these ads, and they are tax deductible. I mean, talk about waving a red flag in front of the IRS. That did it right there. Uh, so they got their tax exemption revoked by the IRS in 1995. Uh, of course, they took it to court. Uh, the federal district court upheld it, and then they took it up on appeal, and the appeals court upheld the decision, upheld the IRS. Their argument was that the plaintiffs, the plaintiffs were offered a choice. The church was uh, were offered a choice. They could engage in partisan political activity and forfeit their 501c3 status, or they could refrain from partisan <coughs> political activity and retain their 501c3 status. That choice is unconnected to the plaintiff's ability to freely exercise their religion. Plaintiffs, therefore, have not demonstrated that the IRS substantially burdened their free exercise of religion. So that was the, uh, the conclusion of the courts in this particular case. And uh, so, and that has not been, you know, uh, has, has, this case didn't go up to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's where it's, it ended. Uh, and so that's pretty much stands as the law of the land. Uh, the second case was here in California, in Pasadena, All Saints Episcopal Church. This one, frankly, is very problematic. Uh, the rector emeritus of the parish got up and gave an anti-war sermon, uh, which he'd done numerous, I mean, he, he, he's rector emeritus, that means he's old. Uh, so he was around in the Vietnam War period, too. And during that period, he was giving anti-war uh, sermons also and never gotten into any trouble. Now, he very specifically said that good people of profound faith could vote for either man and did not tell the parishioners who to support. So it looked to me, yeah, wow, wow, okay. You know, that, you know. So... Then he, he started having a debate between Jesus and the candidates. <laughs> Jesus would have told Bush, Mr. President, your doctrine of preemptive war is a failed doctrine, forcibly changing the regime of an enemy that posed no eminent threat uh, has led to disaster. Um, okay. Uh, then he went on to say, President Bush has led us into war with Iraq as a response to terrorism. Yet I believe Jesus would say to Bush and Kerry, war is itself the most extreme form of terrorism. 
President Bush, you have not made dramatically clear what have been the human consequences of the war in Iraq. Okay, pretty strong language, but so far he hasn't endorsed anybody as far as I can say. What happened? The IRS sent him a letter. Uh, a reasonable belief exists that you have not, you, you, you may not be tax exempt as a church because of your sermon. Um, they cited the Los Angeles Times, which described the sermon as a searing indictment of the Bush administration policies in Iraq, and noted that the sermon described tax cuts as inimical to the values of Jesus. Um, so, the church responded, said, well, you know, they sent them a copy of all their literature, they sent them a copy of their policies and all that. IRS was not satisfied. And so they said, we are going to proceed with a formal examination. Uh, Later on, the you know the audit team that was come was sent in to take a look at the church said, "Well, like you know, we'll, I, we'll, let's settle this. We'll make you a deal. You confess that you did wrong, and uh, we'll let it go, and that'll be it." The church said, "No way! We didn't do anything wrong. Kind of a plea bargain." No, the church said, "No, this is absurd. We didn't do anything wrong." We didn't endorse any candidate. We're just talking about what Jesus would think. You know, we're talking about the issues. Uh, the IRS gave up. In 2000, September 2000, they ended the investigation. However, they said they considered the sermon illegal. But no penalty, no fine, no nothing and no explanation of why they thought it was illegal or why they were dropping the case. So it, it's like, you know, the prosecutor saying, I think you murdered, you murdered him, but we're not going to prosecute you. <laughs> it, it made absolutely no sense at all, except as a face-saving device for the IRS that I think it realized this is a mistake, but we can't admit we made a mistake. So that's what they did. All saints demanded an apology. In fact, they did ask the Treasury Department, which is, of course, over the IRS, to investigate because they felt that there were substantive and uh, procedural errors in the case. Plus, under Freedom of Information Act, they discovered that the Justice Department was in communications with the IRS about this case. And the Justice Department's not supposed to get involved until the case actually goes to court. And yet they were discussing the PR uh, ramifications, blah, blah, blah. So they felt it was undue political interference on the Justice Department. But that you know, was pushing for this investigation. Uh, nothing happened. That's basically the way this case ended. Uh, legal fees, $200,000 for the church. This is, of course, the thing that puts every tax-exempt, especially small tax-exempt organizations, in the heart failure. You know, do you really have $200,000 to hire, you know, an expert in tax-exempt law? Mm -hmm. They hired, you know, a former chief of the IRS tax-exempt mm -hmm. organization, you know, the tax-exempt department. I mean, that's, that's who you hire if you want to beat the IRS. You don't go down and get one of your, you know, some lawyer out of your parish and say, hey, can you do this case for us? You'll be wiped up on the floor. So, $200,000. What are the objections to the Johnsons come in? Well, the basic objection is it's a violation of the First Amendment. Our freedom of religion allows us to say whatever we want in the pulpit. You should not be interfering with that. Plus, freedom of speech. You're denying us our freedom of speech. Uh, Jerry Falwell said the Johnson Amendment bars churches and nonprofits from expressing political free speech. Uh, any this speech he gave at the Republican National Convention. Trust me, the repeal of the Johnson Amendment will create a huge revolution for conservative Christians and for free speech. 
Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council said that the Johnson Amendment has been used to censor speech, something that should never have occurred. Now, you notice the language they're using. They never say this is about endorsing candidates. They never say it's about using church funds for political campaigns. You know, you would think that the IRS was stopping them from talking about issues. This because they know American people don't want their churches endorsing political candidates. So they fudge, you know, their language fudges the issues and pretends that this is the IRS is sitting in every church ready to arrest the pastor if he says uh, uh, something about some uh, social or political issue. The other aspect of this is the chilling effect. Even if it's not enforced, you're scared. I mean, everybody's afraid of the IRS. And if you're a small tax-exempt organization, you do not want the IRS on your back. As I said, the, the legal fees would kill you. So, and donors would say, well, my God, I can't give you money because I'm not going to give you this million dollars because we may find out it's not tax deductible. This is, uh, so it, it can have a chilling effect even if it's not enforced. This is the objections to the Johnson Amendment. And finally, there's the question, can the government require you to give up a constitutional right in order to gain a benefit? Uh, I was involved in an organization that was suing on this myself back when, in my younger days when I was working as a lobbyist for a tax reform organization. But in any case, uh, and there was a case here in, in, the, in California, actually, I think the University of California, Berkeley, in the 50s said that in order to get a scholarship, you have to swear that you have never been a member of the Communist Party. So in order to get a benefit, a scholarship, you have to give up a constitutional right to be a member of any political party you want to be a member of. That was defeated in the court. That was thrown out as unconstitutional. So, okay, but this is kind of the same. I mean, they're, they're giving this tax-exempt benefit, uh, but at the same time, they're uh, taking away a constitutional right of free speech. That's the argument. These are the arguments in, against the Johnson Amendment. I had a Jesuit colleague uh, at Fordham University who was uh, an expert on uh, the First Amendment, church-state, tax-exempt, all that stuff. <laughs> he went and gave a talk to the U.S. bishops. I don't think they invited him back. <laughs> because his comment to them was, remember, Jesus came to save us, not to exempt us. <laughs> so anyway, now, at the Republican National Convention uh, in 2016, they urged the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. This is part of their platform. What's Trump been doing? Well, during the 2016 campaign, he promised to repeal the Johnson Amendment for churches. At the February uh, National Prayer Breakfast, he said, I will get rid of it, totally destroy the Johnson Amendment, and allow our representatives of faith to speak freely without fear. Again, he doesn't say, to endorse me and to use your money to support my campaign. No, no, he says, to speak freely without fear. Uh, you know, never really clarifying what the Johnson Amendment really does and how limited it really is. On May 4th, he signed an executive order prohibiting the IRS from enforcing amend the amendment on churches. In other words, okay, may, no matter whether it's against the law or not, uh, IRS, you can't enforce it. You can't spend any money to enforce it. Now, where did you get this idea? From Obama, of course. He told ICE, you cannot enforce the law about immigration against DACA, or uh, dream, dreamers, yeah. and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. It's the same thing, you know. He's using his executive report authority to say, don't enforce the law in this area. Uh, what's Congress been up to? Well, of course, they introduce bills all the time to, you know, to do these kinds of things, and they have bills uh, that have not gone anywhere yet to uh, get rid of the Johnson Amendment. 
They also followed uh, 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 Trump's lead in uh, uh, getting in the budget that no funds can be used for the IRS to enforce uh, the Johnson Amendment. Now, what every, now, in the news stories, everybody missed unless. They missed the unless. Actually, the, the Congress was a little better than Trump. Uh, they said the, it would require the consent of the IRS commissioner. In other words, it's got to go all the way to the top before we start messing around with churches. One of the reasons uh, that people think that uh, the IRS started running amok was that it, the authority to investigate churches was put down at the very local level. Uh, in the past, you had to get permission of somebody in, in Washington before you could go after a church. Uh, that's probably a smart idea, simply to protect the IRS from bad publicity. But in any case, so they, they, they left in a loophole. So they could still enforce the law under uh, certain circumstances. What do the religious leaders think of this? Well, in August, just, well, this month, fourth, over 4,000 religious leaders from all over the country signed a letter urging Congress to keep the Johnson Amendment. Uh, no Catholic bishop signed that letter. Some Catholic organizations, the Franciscans, God bless the Franciscans, uh, were, were on board with this. Uh, but the Catholic bishops have not, in, you know, didn't sign the letter at all. The Catholic bishops have been pretty much mum. Uh, whenever they've been asked, they say, oh, well, this is not a priority for us. We're not really, this is not. So they haven't said they're, you know, they haven't said they're against, you know, repealing the Johnson Amendment, and they haven't said they're for. Uh, part of the problem is the U.S. bishops are like 300 people, it, you know, and getting them to agree on something uh, is is not that easy. So they're simply not. They have other priorities: immigration, healthcare, uh, religious freedom, blah blah. All these other issues that they're interested in. Okay. Why were they opposed? They want to protect houses of worship from becoming centers of partisan politics. I mean, they feel that repealing the Johnson. The bottom line is these religious uh, leaders believe that repealing the Johnson Amendment will hurt churches will hurt religious organizations, uh, threaten their very integrity and their independence as houses of worship. Faith leaders are called to speak truth to power, and we cannot do so if we are merely cogs in a partisan political machine. So um, these people are, you know, would, don't want to see uh, religious organizations getting in bed uh, with political candidates in their parties. Uh, and they say, particularly in today's political climate, engaging in partisan politics and in issuing endorsements would be highly divisive and have a detrimental impact on con congregational unity and civil discourse. Um, so they are they're very much against the repeal of the Johnson Amendment because of the impact it would have on them, on the internal lives of their uh, institutions, of their congregations. And this is, again, one of the reasons the Catholic bishops also don't like priests getting up in the pulpit and endorsing candidates. Uh, if you're going to do it, you have to do it very slyly, uh, so no one notices. <laughs> the other aspect of this is the impact of all of this on campaign financing. Because basically, it would make churches and tax-exempt organizations uh, a laundry for political contributions. You know, uh, they, in fact, they would be tax-deductible if you, you know, hey, Father, you know, I want to give, you know, thousand in fact let's make it ten thousand dollars to support this candidate but if you know if I give it to you your church and then you give it to him then it's tax deductible for me whereas if I just give it to him it's not tax deductible you know come on father you like that candidate too don't you oh well, you know this and of course it's not just religious it's every tax exempt 
in the country where this would be possible. Uh, it would also allow donors to avoid disclosure. Uh, you know, so we got an increase in dark money if this Johnson Amendment is repealed, uh, where people can give unlimited amounts of money uh, to uh, candidates as long as they launder it through a tax-exempt organization, especially a church, because churches don't have to report their finances. Uh, some of you in the other tax-exempts have to fill out forms and send them to the government so people can maybe track you, but churches don't. Now, the repeal is also, not just by religious leaders, it's also opposed by the National Council of Nonprofits. And uh, Tim Delaney, who's the president of that organization, says nonprofits are already free to exercise their First Amendment rights to advocate for their mission, allowing political operatives to push for endorsements would put nonprofits in a position where they would they become known as democratic charities or Republican charities, and that would put their mission at risk. So it's not just the churches that are uh, concerned about this. Uh, the, the, tax, the nonprofit sector is also very concerned about this. The only people who seem to want this are the politicians, some politicians, and uh, the, some very vocal leaders in the white evangelical community, all those people who go pray over uh, President Trump uh, in the White House. Uh, they're the ones who, you know, who are pushing this. Is there any kind of a compromise? Well, of course, it could be limited to churches, but then what's a church? Good luck. Uh, you know, oh, I'm the church of, uh, of the spaghetti god, and, uh, you know, and we're endorsing whoever. Um, so, and also it still has the problem of the campaign contributions. Uh, another compromise would, not, would be not to enforce the law against religious groups as long as the political activities are conducted as an ancillary part of the regular operation. In other words, it's not, it's not a big part. You know, in other words, if the pastor gets up and says, I think you should all vote for Hillary, okay, is the, is the organization is going to lose their tax exemption simply because he gets up in the pulpit and says that. Uh, do you want, you know, so he, uh, you know, so you could do that, or, you, you know, you could have some rules like, okay, as long as it's part of their normal activity and the costs of doing it are de minimis. Now, these would be compromised. I mean, right now, it's you spend one penny on a political campaign, you're toast. So, uh, this would be a way of protecting charities uh, in this way. Now, these are all possibilities. I'm not endorsing any of them. I kind of like things the way they are. Anyway, that's it. Thank you very much. Uh, and somebody will tell me when to stop, right? So any questions uh, or comments or any, um, love to hear your experiences uh, in this realm uh, too. Yes, ma'am. Just a point of clarification, our, our, what designation are churches, 501? 501c3s. They, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Each parish or the diocese? Well, the, the, way, uh, the way the IRS, the IRS doesn't want to deal with thousands of Catholic parishes and organizations. What they do is every year, the, there is published what is called the Official Catholic Directory. It's published by Kennedy and Sons or something like that. It's a humongous book. It's got the name of every parish every priest, you know, every Catholic hospital. Well, I'm not sure of that. But anyway, it's it, it, any, any Catholic organization uh, that the bishops approve of is in there. They walk this book over to the IRS and bloop, there it is. And the IRS issues a revenue ruling saying everybody listed in this book is tax exempt. That's the way they deal with the Catholic Church. How they deal with other churches, I really don't know. Uh, I mean, certain, hmm? it's all individual. It's all individual. Yeah. yeah. See, we're we're kind of lucky in being hierarchical, 
and it's easy. But for example, you know, the uh, Sisters Network, I don't know if you know the network lobby, well, they're, they're not allowed in the Catholic directory. Of course, for a number, I mean, they do lobby. I mean, that's their, their whole purpose. So they're really a 501c4, not a 501c3. Uh, so that's, that's how they deal with it. But, you know, uh, if, if, unless there's some kind of a hierarchical organization that can do this sort of stuff, uh, and if, and you know, the IRS knows too, if the if one of these organizations starts to do something they don't like, they send a letter to the organization and CC the bishops. And the bishops don't want, I mean, they like being able to hand this book to them. And so, you know, the bishops will say, what the hell are you doing? You're putting our whole book at risk, you know, so cool it. Uh, so there's that, you know, it's one hierarchy speaking to another hierarchy. One yeah. bit of experience on that, I, we do a festival and we want free beer. So we have to prove our tax-exempt status. And you cannot get a letter that applies to your own parish. You have to go to your own diocese. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so that's, if that's the letter and the number. So we have a number, but it's the bishops, it's not ours. Yes, yes. Actually, what you can do is, is get a copy of that IRS ruling that says everybody in this book is tax exempt. Then you Xerox the page in which you are in, and you take those two documents and you hand them. To, you don't have to talk to the bishop. You just hand those to whoever is asking you a question, mm -hmm. and that works. Getting it from the diocese is work, too. Yeah, well, in this diocese. <laughs> yes. Our professional organization, American Psychological has a C3, but it has a parallel C6 organization that works in conjunction. And so for lobbying and all that kind of stuff, politics. C6 or C4? I think they say okay. it's C6. But, but you have the C3, and they're always very careful not to yes. politics with yes. the C3. But it's a par So why couldn't the churches and Jerry Farwell and company have a C4 or C6 in parallel, and then they can do whatever they want on that side as long as they keep the C3? They have that already. Yeah, they, they've got that already. They do. Uh, but those contributions are taxes in. Yeah, see, that's, that's the case. I, I don't know C6. Let me talk about C4. Uh, I work for an organization dealing with taxes. And we had a 501c3, which, you know, educational, blah, 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 do-gooder uh, organization. And then we had the C4, which was the lobby. And every week, I would have to fill out my timesheet saying how much time I spent on one and how much time I spent on the other. And I got two checks. I mean, they even you know, diagrammed in the office where my office was. And that part of the office rent went to the C4. I mean, it was horrendous. But we did it because we had to be perfectly pure because we were lobbying on tax reform, for God's sake. <laughs> now, the key thing, is, as was mentioned, is that you know, you can, you can go to a foundation, you can go to a donor and, you know, give us money for our educational 501c3 work. Oh, sure, here, it's tax deductible. You go and say, you know, we have this 501c4, which is lobbying. We need money for that. Well, is that tax deductible? No. Can foundations give to that? No. Uh, so that's, that's part of the problem there. Actually, I'm not sure whether C4s can endorse candidates either. Right? Uh, but any, in any case, you, yeah, it basically you have to set up a separate organization to do that kind of thing. Yes? A few years ago, um, John McCain came to Santa Clara to speak at the Levy Center. Were we in violation of the Johnson Amendment? By uh, was, he, was he running for... Running for oh, he was running for president at the time. Uh, as long as you also invited the other candidate, you know, you're fine. You know, if the other candidate says no and doesn't come, well, yeah, we try. So that would be... Now, now, also, you know, you might... You know, also, it depends... Again, remember that document at the very beginning? I'm not giving you legal advice. <laughs> I think also that if, for example, if you're having uh, a forum on immigration, 
and you invite somebody, and it's the middle of a political campaign, but this person is an expert on immigration. They're the chair of the Immigration Committee of the, of the U.S. Senate or whatever. Well, you're, you're, you're not inviting them to come and give a political you know, campaign speech. You're inviting them to participate in a discussion on that particular issue. And I think you would probably be safe under those circumstances also. But the safest thing in, during a political campaign is you invite both, both candidates. And if one of them says, no, hey, well, fine, that's your problem. So is that what's happening when candidates are speaking in churches? Because we see this all the time during the campaign season, that presidential candidates come and speak in churches. Yeah. Good, yeah, good. Who knows? Uh, I think that's good. You certainly will never see that in a Catholic church. You will see it in, in uh, uh, white evangelical churches, and you will see it in uh, uh, black uh, Protestant churches. That kind of thing happening. Now, sometimes, you know, is Trump really going to come and speak at a black Protestant church? Uh, you know, probably not. So, you know, you can send them an invitation, which they, you know, never answer. That, that can solve, you, you never know whether that's happening or not. Um, I, I remember this was the, I forget which election this was, where there was one, of, there was a faith forum that was, you know, who's the guy down in Southern California? Rick Warren. Yeah, Rick Satellite. Warren. Yeah, yeah Satellite, uh, uh, Saddleback uh, Church down there. In any case, he did this Q&A with the candidates. He was in the sanctuary of his church. I could never imagine a Catholic bishop allowing that to happen. You know, you don't do it in a church. You do it in the hall, you know. You, you know, so, uh, but, but, you know, I don't know. Protestants are much easier going about these things than, than Catholics are. I think we're so terrified uh, because of our history of anti-Catholicism, uh, you know. For example, I mean, for example, I mean, Protestant ministers have no problem running for political office. You know, Jesse Jackson, Pat Robinson, Robertson. Imagine if Cardinal Dolan decided to run for president. I can, you know, people would go bonkers. You know, if that, but he's got a legal constitutional right to do that. I mean, Bob Dreinen ran for Congress and won, served. Uh, there was another Catholic didn't, priest. Didn't he get? He got booted by the out. Church to not do that. Yeah, he got booted out by the church. By the church, not the government. Mm -hmm. So it was church law it, in the Catholic tradition. It's church law that forbids clergy from being involved in politics, not the U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. It's not a question of separation of church and state that says Dolan can't run for president. It's, it's canon law that says he can't run for president. Protestants early on also discouraged clergy from running for office. Yeah, things have changed. So, I mean, I, the question I have about the, the history of this is an important piece, because this is a really recent development. And the fact that it comes not from churches, Johnson wasn't concerned so much about churches as these... Yeah, it was not even, awesome. yeah. So, I mean, do you know anything about the history of sort of pulpit and church endorsements of political candidates prior to the Johnson uh, I think, you know, so I, th I think it's one of those things where some churches did it, but they do it locally. There wasn't the kind of 24-7 uh, news coverage. There wasn't, uh, uh, you know, people just didn't pay much attention to it. Um, but I think also there was, there was somewhat of a reluctance to do it uh, because people... You know, we still believe in separation of church and state. And when the church starts endorsing candidates, most people in this con country get very uncomfortable with that and say, no, no, uh, that's not appropriate. Uh, so it's, it's only recently that these cases have come up. There may be earlier cases that I don't know of, uh, but these are the ones that, that, uh, that I know about. Uh, yes? Um, oh. No, no, good. Prop, was Prop A, which was the housing 
Yes. So is that because it wasn't a particular candidate? Yes. Or you can, they, you can uh, again, consult your lawyers. <laughs> uh, yes, you can, you can take positions on uh, propositions without any problem at all. The Legal Women Voters, which is a 501c3, does that every election. It's not a problem. You can you because it's an issue. It's not a candidate. It's not a you know a political campaign in the sense of an election. Yes. I have two questions. One, um, the the timeline for this, and second, I know we've talked a lot about endorsements of candidates, but it's the money. The money is the other big issue here. Yes. Uh, the funneling of money through a charitable organization that doesn't have to report it to political campaigns is well, if it's a 501c3, it's against the law. Um, now, there are all these other, you know, kinds of corporations, which I don't, you know, especially in the political campaign area, that I don't have enough expertise on to speak about. But if it's a 501c3, it's illegal to take money from that and funnel it into Even a campaign. Even if they killed the Johnson Pardon me? Even if they repeal Oh, if they repeal the Johnson Amendment, then it's home free. You can do all that. I'm sorry, I misunderstood the question. Yeah, that's huge. I think that is the biggest, biggest problem uh, here with <coughs> repealing the Johnson Amendment is the allowing uh, uh, money to be funneled through tax-exempt organizations to... I mean, well, this means Bill Gates Foundation. This means uh, Soros' Foundation. This means, you know, the Koch brothers. Yeah. You know, I mean, everybody can suddenly have tax exempt organizations that funnel money into campaigns. It's a tax deduction. And it's all tax deductible. Yes, ma'am. Let's take two last questions and then I'm sure Father Reese will stick around to sure. ask. You know, yes. This, uh, this goes back to uh, the mentioning of the whole question of free speech. Yes. And how that. Is playing into uh, this whole debate. I'm wondering what definition of free speech is. Okay. It looks like, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Another, yeah. Outside the room. Well, In my law definition of free speech, or whose, whose definition of yeah. free speech is? That's a good question. I, You know, in the United States, we've been litigating what's free speech for, you know, ever since the Constitution, well, the Bill of Rights was, was written, you know, what can people say? Uh, and the, the main th uh, thrust of the First Amendment is to keep the government from censoring people or, or stopping them from saying whatever they want to do. Now, on the other hand, you can't, you know, the old story, you can't yell fire in a theater. Uh, that's not free speech. Uh, you can't say, let's go kill all these people, you know, uh, that's not free speech. Uh, you know, lead, you know, uh, urging people to violence and things like that. So there are restrictions on free speech, but in this particular case, it's, it's a restriction on political free speech, you know, in terms of uh, endorsing candidates and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so that's the argument there, that this is an infringement on their free speech. Even though they can, like I said, they can walk out on the sidewalk and say whatever they want, as long as they're not using money from the tax exempt organization, as long as they are not uh, being paid by the tax exempt organization when they're doing this, as long as they're doing it on the free time off property, they can say whatever they want. So, yeah. Oh, wearing your uniform. Well, that yeah, that, that, that that's a good point too. Uh, yes. Would any um, Catholic priests from local parishes um, be able to support this if the bishops are not supporting it? I mean, is, it is that like, not really possible? You mean support, support the repeal? The, no, of support the maintenance. Support <laughs> keeping it. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm saying it. Yeah. No, well. Well, see, the bishops are not calling for its repeal. Either. They're just not. They're just not. They just have not. They're ignoring it. Is basically, I guess, the answer to this question. Some bishops have said, "No, this is not a good idea." I think our local bishop PJ would 
undoubtedly say something along those lines. But the bishops as a group have not come to a conclusion and decided what they want to do on that. Um, do you think there's any chance that they might still? If, well, this, now, you, now you're pushing me into political interpretations <laughs> and analysis. <laughs> I mean, what you know? It could be simply, hey, this is a fight we don't want to get in. Yeah. Let them fight it out. It's not going to change anyway. Let's not get involved. I mean, there's lots of issues where the bishops decide they're not going to get involved. Yeah, of 21 on the ballot last time, they spoke on three. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, politically, it could be well. You know, we're allies with the evangelicals on all these other issues, and they're pushing for this. Do we really want to punch them in the nose? When there are allies on these more important issues that we're concerned about, let's just keep quiet and let, let them do their thing. And we'll, you know, my political science training makes me wonder if that's what's what's going on. Thank you so much.